Uh-huh. Welcome to the History of LA SCIA one-on-one sessions. I'm your host, Junior Francis, alongside our presenter, or our producer rather, and good friend, Eric Kohler. Now, this series, for your information, celebrates and aims to preserve and promote the SCIA rocksteady and vintage reggae scene throughout Southern California and beyond through insightful conversations with legends and modern day talent, including those behind the scenes. And a lot of people are always and continue to work behind the scenes to make this possible. So we wanna thank them. So whether you listen to this podcast series or watch us on YouTube, a big lodging and life, thank you for your support. And please remember to subscribe and tell your friends and tell as many friends as you possibly can. And it's your obligation to tell as many people so that we can continue to grow. Yes. This amazing episode. We welcome bassist, vocalist, producer, composer, master educator, John Avila of Oingo Boingo fame, and now the group Oingo Boingo former members. John, big respect. Yes, welcome, John. It's a pleasure Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I'm um, honored to be here. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. We're going to have some fun. And, and, and personally, I have to say, Oingo Boingo was such a big part of my, of my youth. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, provided the soundtrack, uh, you, you could say. Um, so it's a true honor. I mean, so many of the songs uh, that, that you either recorded or at least performed live um, over the years, I mean, from Home Again to <laughs> Try to Believe, We Close Our Eyes, Stay, I can just go on and on and on. Uh, such a massive fan. Um, and mm -hmm. we're going to have some fun here. Some of our listeners and viewers might wonder why we're talking with you. Um, they're going to find out, uh, so it might be surprised to some, maybe maybe not to others. Um, but either way, we're going to celebrate uh, your life, learn a little bit more. And um, and with that, Junior, I'll turn mm -hmm. it over to you. Yes, sir. So, John, you were born and raised in the San Gabriel Valley, right? Yes, uh -huh. actually in the city of San Gabriel. Oh, San okay. of San Gabriel, All which right. is also part of the San Gabriel. Which was actually was South San Gabriel when I was a kid. Oh, and, wow. And it... That turned into the city of Rosemead. Oh, yeah. and oh, interesting. In my lifetime, it did that. And now yeah. uh, I live in San Gabriel and pretty much lived here all my whole life. Right. And for the uh, non-Southern California listeners and viewers, uh, can you give us a sense as to where precisely well, this area? To my understanding, it starts east of Los Angeles. Can you take it yes. from... I mean, I could be in downtown LA in about 15 minutes, maybe 12 minutes. Mm -hmm. And I'm just south of Pasadena. So where the Rose Parade would end mm -hmm. would be about two and a half miles from my house. Okay. And, uh, or where I grew up. And um, it was a rich area with, as far as music, musicians, uh, especially guitar players. And um, one of the guitar players that came from where, where I grew up is uh, Eddie Van Halen. Oh, wow. <laughs> Big name. Uh, I, was, I mean, I, yeah, I was uh, the first band I played in was a, a, a band from San Gabriel called Blowout, one of the very first bands. And we used to do backyard high school parties. Uh, and one of the bands that used to play these parties was a band, band called Van Halen. Wow. And, and I saw them before they were famous when they were teenagers. Yeah. Uh, Eddie was 17 years old when we were doing these gigs. Oh my and God. I, I was actually at his 18th birthday party. <laughs> that's, so, that's so wild. <laughs> and so I got to see that level of musicianship from a 17 year old. And, and, uh, it, and it was, and it was extremely impressive even back then. Incredibly. I knew, and one of my, 
gifts, I would say, has always been to know when I hear something special. Uh, and I can go on. I have so many stories of people I met before anyone heard of them. Mm -hmm. yeah. Become super famous. It wouldn't and, do any harm if you share some of the names with us. <laughs> oh God! Well, Eddie Van Halen would be one. Uh, I saw I saw uh, uh, Eddie Vedder, another Eddie. Oh, sure. Yeah. Earl Jam okay. uh, used to open for my band in San Diego. Uh, I was touring with a. With, uh, I had a, a punk band, Food for Feet, and start yeah. that started in 1980, and this band called Bad Radio opened for us in San Diego and they had this band called they had this singer named Eddie and Eddie became one of our biggest fans wow. he used to see us play every time we played anywhere around San Diego and we used to call him little Eddie because <laughs> Eddie was my size I'm a little guy and uh eddie and i were like eye to eye <laughs> and, and uh and uh eddie used to come with his girlfriend and and help us carry our gear and get us beers and, and uh cool. later on i come to find out that he had joined a band called pearl jam yeah. mm. and and there's a great story with that that goes with that in that um i went to to uh to uh um was one of the big festivals they used to have of uh, 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 Lollapalooza. Lollapalooza, yeah. And this was around '93, yeah. and I went. I went with uh, my nephews, and after the the concert, we went backstage, or we went to the backstage area. Uh, this was at at uh, at Irvine Meadows, and I, my nephews asked me to get an autograph from Eddie Vedder, and I went up to Eddie and I excuse me, Eddie, would you uh, sign my nephews? t-shirt and eddie turns around and he goes oh and he's jumping on me and i was like where do i know this guy I figure he must be a boingo fan because i i've had a lot of famous people who are big boingo fans approach me and it turns out uh at that moment at that moment when he was hugging me and giving me uh, i didn't know that eddie vetter was little eddie Oh, I didn't know they were the same guys. Right, because of what a decade or so had passed, right? Yeah, I just, I just didn't know, and so Eddie, Eddie's like, "It's me, little Eddie, little Eddie," <laughs> and then I'm hugging him because now I know who oh, he that is. Must have been so you made great. a connection. What a, what a wonderful <laughs> feeling! Yeah. And who else? I'm just curious. Name one more. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I, I went to see um, John Popper with uh, what was this blues, band? Blues Traveler. I saw Blues Traveler play for 12 people at a, at a club in New York City uh, after a, a, on a day off in New York when I was there for a Boingo gig. And my our manager, uh, Mike Gormley, took, hey, you want to go hear this band? And I I saw John Popper. And, I, and actually, years later, I got to share that with him. And he says he remembers that I was there. Wow. You know? wow. And, yeah. Interesting. Some, some, some great, great A&R uh, work, too. Uh. <laughs> so, John, you grew up in a musical family? Yes. Uh, my mother and father both played. Wow. That's like the foundation. I, yeah, my mother was an incredible singer. She sang mm. on the radio oh, and wow. my and played guitar. And my father played guitar. And so my mother taught me my first guitar chords when I was like six years old. And of course, I I was six years old when I saw the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show wow. make their uh, debut to America, and I witnessed yes. that. 
it was like a Super Bowl Sunday. Our families all got together to watch this event. Yeah. And that, I mean, that was just, it was so new and so fresh and so amazing. And so, uh, I, you know, I started playing, you know, uh, 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 Beatle tunes, you know, like I want to hold your hand and twist and shout. <laughs> and and um, I, I had uh, at that time, my father, when I was starting to play a little guitar, keep in mind, I never aspired to be a guitar player. Like I couldn't take solos or play anything really fancy, but I was, I was always really good at just playing chords and singing along and and you know, pick. I call it picking and a grinning. You know, <laughs> right? And uh, and, and uh, 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 it was later on that. Uh, and, and I also had a brother who played uh, keys, Hammond B three, and he still plays. Mm -hmm. And, and um, so I was around bands rehearsing at when he was in junior high school, and he's six years older than me. So when he was in junior high school, he was already playing in bands. And so I was around watching bands rehearse. I like them around music. I was a kid, and and um, and and I was always fascinated <clears throat> by the bass players. Mm -hmm. I, I never like would watch the guitar players. It was always the bass. Mm. And one day, uh, uh, I was 16 years old. I was already driving a car, and. Um, a friend of mine helped asked me to help him move into an, into an, uh, an apartment. So we're moving him in. I had all this, you know, we're gathering all those things. We're putting them into the, it, bringing his things in. And we look up at this, at this new place he was at and we noticed there was an attic and we're like, wow, an attic. And we got a ladder and we opened it up with a flashlight. We're looking up there and like somebody had left a Japanese copy of a Hofner base in the attic from the people who lived there before we brought the bass down and uh and it was like from the moment i picked that bass up it was like oh i heard violins it was just like a this incredible moment <laughs> moment and uh my my friend sold me that that bass for 15 dollars even though it wasn't his <laughs> it wasn't exactly it, he just, it was he, a mutual he, discovery <laughs> yeah but it was 15 bucks because it was in in his attic right, you know? right, right. Wow. and so uh i took that bass home and from that moment i took it home i started practicing like 10 hours a day uh i it was like around the clock my parents thought i was nuts i never came out of my room and i just played and played and played within six months i was playing in my first band and that was this band called blowout oh my god and, and uh and we started playing these backyard high school parties in pasadena right one of the bands that was playing in these high school parties was a band called van halen <laughs> and so i got to see eddie before he was famous and he was still yes. he wasn't even 18 years old mm -hmm. and, and um so i saw him doing all that crazy sure. he was do he was already eddie by then no. and they they looked amazing but they were doing all covers at the time right and i remember taking my six year uh year old older brother and his friends and i told them uh, uh, Van Halen was playing at a bowling alley in Monrovia. Okay. And I, I, I told him, I'm going to take you guys to hear the next Hendrix. 
Wow. And they were like, what? And I oh, said, yeah. I'll take you to see the next Hendrix. <clears throat> I took my 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 brother and three of his friends, and You're they wow. agreed, and they agreed yeah. when they saw him. And that what, moment. And, that and moment. They, and they tell me that man, you saw it, you know. Right. Right. Oh, my and goodness. I saw them, I saw Van Halen play at the at the Hacienda Heights Women's Club, uh, amongst other glamorous places. You know? <laughs> right, right, right. Yes, sir. That's and um uh who was uh on the same note, who are some of your biggest uh influences? Especially well, early on, of course, Paul players, McCartney, you know, Paul McCartney, you know, yeah. I still consider one of the great bass players who ever played. Perfect. His melodic sense. Uh, and the way he played around the song, you listen to a song like something, uh, the bass playing on that is just, it's genius, bass playing. And so I've always had this thing where when I'm playing, I, I think of the bass almost like I'm singing. And and when I look at the neck and some of the earlier bass virtuosos, when I started, Stanley Clark was just starting to play, was starting to become famous and Jocko Pastorius wow. and, and of course I was always into Cream and Jack Bruce and the Who and those guys that can really play uh, um, uh, Tim Bogart was another one who I really enjoyed his playing and I got to know him and um, um, so I mean I had a there was some already some great bass players that were already hitting by that time right. and so I always approach the what it's crazy when you're when you're eight six 17 years old and you're just starting is like i wanted to be the best bass player in the world and i practiced all day every I like day that outlook to try to get to that and um and and i had those as my mountaintops to try to yeah. so what drove you what motivated you even at age 17 it was just the love i guess you know um and at 17 years old, it was different back then, way different. In what sense? Uh, in one sense is that there was no DJs. Oh. Uh, all the, the clubs had live music. And so there was way more places to play and way more work and, as a musician back then. Right. And way, way more bands to see around town. Yeah. And I mean, every bar and club had bands playing in them and people dancing and whatever. And so by the time I was a junior in high school, I was already playing five nights a week in, wow. in bars and clubs. And um, so, I mean, it was like, like earning your stripes right from the get-go. Right, yeah. Five sets a night, five, six nights a week. Yeah. You, you just can only master start. Master master. Yes. You just get better. And, and no I, way. there was no way around it. <laughs> yeah. And you and I always tried to play with players that were better than me. So right. that it yeah. made me rise to 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 be at their level. And so I was, and luckily I had, you know, people that kind of took me under their arms, uh uh, you know, mentor older players that I looked up to. Uh, just neighborhood guys that I, you know, just liked being around and playing yeah. with. And right. so what what this ha what happened was I started making a living. I mean, literally, I was still in high school. And, uh, you know, the amount back then, you know, the minimum wage, if you went to work at McDonald's, you know, you were probably going to make a dollar fifty an hour working at McDonald's in 1973 or 74. 
And I was making 30 bucks a night right. playing in, in bars. Right. I was doing very well. <laughs> oh, yes. Right. And so I never had to get a job. And I never did get a job. I got one job when my car broke down for a month to help to get a, a, a transmission. But besides <laughs> that, I really never worked uh, except for playing music. Right. And, so and, one of my favorite fr phrase is that you all your life you practice one profession, one only. That is killing the bass. <laughs> yes. Playing, but literally, literally killing the bass. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and so um, it uh, I graduated from high school, and three weeks after I graduated, I moved out and had my own place already. Cause I was making money and I, I mean, my first back then rents were a hundred bucks a month sure, sure. and I could make that in three nights playing, you know, and I had my, my rent paid and um, I graduated from high school and I wanted to um, get educated in music. I had never taken a lesson. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, and so I was going, I, I, I uh, signed up for uh, the uh, music course at East LA college. Oh, nice. And I was going there, you know, every day going to school and I loved it. I was playing in the jazz band at East LA College. But at night, uh, at that time, I had a um, uh, I had a gig at a club uh, called Filthy McNasty's. Oh, yes. Which became and the Viper Room, right? Yeah. It became the Viper Room. Well, I was in the house band there playing there five nights a week. <laughs> wow. And one night a guy came up to me. And says, man, I really like the way you play. Uh, there's a band auditioning bass players. Uh, you should go down and and tell them I sent you, you know. And I went down, I auditioned, and I got the gig. And the gig was a uh, for a band called El Chicano. They were on a major label, you know, they yeah, were on right. MCA Records, which I think turned into Universal. Right, yeah. I already had a couple of songs on the radio. Mm -hmm. And um, my first gig playing with Al Chicano was opening for Santana oh. in a baseball stadium in front of 40,000 people. That's incredible. <laughs> and I was 18 years old, 19 years oh. old, and yeah. played my first big concert. And then they said, you know, we'd like to take you on tour with us. And so I had to make a decision. Do I go on tour with this, with Al Chicano or, uh, or, I, or I obviously can't do that and go to East LA College. Right. So I had to leave East LA College and I left on tour. Wow. And that tour ended uh, last night or two nights ago. <laughs> That's the right. Yeah. Uh, I never stopped. How long did you tour uh, during that time with El Chicano? Uh, about a year, actually. We we toured with Santana. We we went out with bands like the OJs, the Mirror. Yeah, of course, sure. Uh, um, uh, the the I can't remember all the the bands, but a lot of those kind of bands playing big venues like yeah, you know, arenas yeah. and things like that. Of course, yeah. And and uh, went to Southeast Asia, toured Southeast Asia. Oh my goodness! And um, so what an I mean, it was off to the races. Yeah, and uh, so I got to experience touring and flying and and hotel rooms every night, <clears throat> and from from then it just went on. I mean, even up until Real Big Fish, yeah. which I'm sure we're going to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, up until Real <clears throat> Big Fish, I that's all I did was tour. Yeah, mm. right, right. So so <clears throat> let's talk about 
Oingo Boingo. So, so I, I, I know you were not the founding member. So, so Danny Elfman um, formed Oingo Boingo here in Southern California around 79, if, if I'm not mistaken. Well, the, the, the band that we know, Oingo Boingo, the, the, the rock band, started around 79. But before that, they were the Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo. Yes. And they were more of a theatrical uh, uh, group, you know. Yes. It was not rock. It was like puppets and right. <laughs> out, crazy outfits. And they started, uh, you know, by by basking in, in on Ven Venice Boulevard, or Ven, you know, on the on the yeah, board, yeah, yeah. right? The boardwalk. Yeah, this is before <laughs> I met them, of course. Right. But they started there, and they started drawing crowds. They moved into a theater in the area. They started playing uh, in a theater. And it was around that time that they started the band Oingo Boingo with Danny. Yes. Uh, so, so, and, uh, so, so in, in the in the early years of Oingo Boingo, even even before uh, some of this was before you joined, but but you know by listening to some of the early songs, uh, the really upbeat, in, infectious yeah. compositions, some of which. <clears throat> Can definitely be labeled ska or or ska. Oh yeah, I mean there was uh, definitely some songs that had yeah. that you were know, ska. Right, uh, you know you can, talk, you can talk about violent love. Uh, it only makes me laugh. No one lives forever. Even even on the reggae tip, fill the void. Right. Yeah. Uh, so so it's interesting because here in Southern California, um, the Box Boys would be considered LA's first ska band. Untouchables and Fishbone also very early on. Sure. But, but one could say. That Oingo Boingo, you know, was right up there, right? Early on playing. Right there in the early, early years. Absolutely. Yes. yes. And it wasn't only a ska band. The, the band did punk and did 100%, right. all yeah. kinds of different things. But right. ska right. was part of the influence. Yes, for, for sure. Yeah. So speaking of which, when did you first hear ska? You know, traditional ska. And was it uh, the original Jamaican sound or, in fact, the two-tone British sound? That's a very interesting question. Yeah, yeah, I don't know yeah. if I even think about that. Um, or, or was it was me, the for me, for me, uh, and this is another. This is before Oingo Boingo. Okay. Because I was touring for almost ten years before I joined mm -hmm. Oingo Boingo. Right. right. And um, I was. Uh, I got a gig. Plan, uh, touring Europe, and I ended up living in in Europe uh, in the city Cologne, oh, specifically wow. where Cologne. And this would have been around seventy nine. Okay. And mm -hmm. uh, and I, this is great. When I got that gig, oh. playing at this club. Oh, John, can you hear us? John, you froze just for a second. We're on a roll. Yeah. John, can you hear us? Something is happening. We're going to get John talking. John? If you can hear us, maybe try um try your video off or sound off. Oh, okay. Now there we go. All right. Can you hear us? There we go. All right. We got you, John. So, so, 
So, so I, you, sorry. So pick it up from Cologne. So I was playing at this club called Josephina's. Okay. And and they hit me up to a. I didn't even. It wasn't even an audition. The guy says, "Here's the gig," and I remember at the time I was probably making eighty bucks that night. You know, in this playing this club. And, but it was an awesome gig. It was, uh, Josephina's was like the jam mm. gig in town. And uh, part of the, the the part of the band that I was playing with was the band Rufus. Oh. And, and, and people like Chaka Khan and, and Al Jarreau, <laughs> all these people wow. would come up and hit me up to play with, or, or would come up and sit in. Al Jarreau would sit in. And at one point, Al even had asked, I had played with Al uh, earlier, uh, uh, before Al was famous, I actually played uh, in played gigs with him. And- um, In what so, country? Here in America? Yeah, that was in the Valley. Oh, and good Hollywood. Good. Yeah, I used to play the Blah Blah Cafe with him. Uh, uh, Vinny Caliuta would be on drums, you know, some really great players that I was around. And this was kind of before I think they were famous. I know Al wasn't famous yet. And um, so I I, uh, I, got this offer to go to Europe. And, you know, I'm still like 20 years old or 21 years old. I'm young. I, I'm single. Uh, it was just like an adventure to me. So I, I agreed to go. And uh, this was on a Monday when they when they told me I had the gig. And I had to be on the plane on Thursday to fly over to Europe and be and I ended up being there for a year. And on the way to the airport in LA, I was going to LAX, I had this thought in my head that I'm going to a country to uh, that I'm, I'm going to step foot when I step foot off that plane, I'm going to a country and a continent I've never been in. I'm going to play in a band I have yet to meet. And so right. they don't know or care what I look like, before, you know, whatever I look like when I get off that plane, right. that's what I'm going to be. Yeah. So I thought about that and I said, why don't I play with that a little bit? So on the way to the airport, I stopped at this punk rock barbershop in Venice Beach. And I went in and I got a mohawk. <laughs> and, I on that, and I had like, I was like this, right? <clears throat> and, I, and when I stepped off that that plane in, in, I, in Europe, I, it turns out the, the, the lead singer in the band I was playing with was a, was a guy named Arno Steffen, who was like the biggest punk rock singer in Cologne. And and um, and at that moment, I will never forget. And and I started going to the pubs. The song that I heard in the in the jukeboxes and people dancing and going crazy was the song "One Step Beyond" by Madness. Oh, nice, yeah. <laughs> One step beyond. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I freaking <laughs> loved that song and that vibe and that whole that beat. And uh, and I mean, even right after that, the English beat had hit by that time or right around that time. And uh, and so I, I just loved the sound and the beat and the whole thing. And and so I, I lived in Germany for a year and it was while I was there and I was touring most of the time I was there touring Europe and um, 
I got the get uh, the. It turns out the they needed a guitar player for one of the tours later on while I was there. I I got this friend of mine, Mike Tovar. Uh, I got him the gig, and they flew him out to to uh, to Cologne, and we did the last tour with with uh, Tovar. While we were there, Tovar and I started writing. We we were you know in the same house, and we started writing songs. And we were, man, man, these songs are kind of cool. We kind of got something going on here. We were like, and so, man, when we get back to LA, we got to start a band. So, <laughs> so we, so that gig ended. And basically, I basically just like was ready to go back to LA. Sure. And we went back to LA and we decided to start this band. Uh, our first, we, we got a drummer. Actually, the first drummer we were, working with with these songs was dave garibaldi from tower of power oh yeah <laughs> tower yeah. of power so we were playing with dave for a while and not really gigging we were just mainly just working on the songs in 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 a rehearsal setting and dave ended up not doing any gigs with us he didn't he was living way off in the deep valley we were in the east side and it became really hard for us to to commute and so we we decided, you know, to get another drummer. We got this this drummer. Uh, he was in another famous band. I can't remember the band right now, but we we got our first gig at Madame Wong's Chinatown, yep. and that was right when in the middle of the punk rock scene. Now, LA. This is nineteen eighty, and and Madame Wong's in the and the Hong Kong Cafe were door to door. The two door the two doors faced each other. And and our first gig was at Madame Wong's, and I remember we went up there, and George Wong liked our liked our sound. We had a cassette, we played it for him. And, All right, you guys can come and do a gig, okay? And we were walking down the stairs. I'll never forget this. We're walking down the stairs, and the door opens up, and George Wong, hey, with his Chinese accent, hey, you guys, you guys, uh, uh, you didn't tell me the name of your band. You know, and I and and we, oh my God, we never even had a band name. <laughs> and, and I turned around and looked up at him. I said, "Food for feet, <laughs> food for feet." And I swear to God, that came just came out of my mouth. And my friend Tovar looks at me like, "Food for feet," and and then George Wong says, "Food for feet." He goes, "Food for thought." That's a better name, food for thought. <laughs> and I was like, "Not food." For, I go, "Food for feet." And he goes. Okay. And so, <laughs> so we had our first gig with our name up on the yeah. you know, third on the band. You know, we were probably opening, we were the first band, but uh we immediately started getting a following. Wow. And and uh and we started playing Madame Wong's and all the Hollywood clubs, uh uh club lingerie, the you ever do the on club? Uh no, we did uh uh Baba's. Okay. Uh, there was all these little just yeah. these scenes going on around that time and and then we had another gig at at madame wong's and i had just met on a bebop gig i was playing bebop uh trio jazz trio and i and with this local guitar player uh and the drummer on that gig was John Hernandez, Johnny Vatos Hernandez. Yes. And I met him literally on a gig and we immediately hit it off. We were like, wow, hey, we just love playing, you know, this, this, why don't we get together? And 
So we started jamming and uh, uh, and uh, one night, and I invited uh, Vatos to come see uh, Food for Feet at Madame Wong's. Yeah. And, that, and after we played the gig that night, the drummer gave us his notice that his band was leaving on tour and he couldn't play with us anymore. And um, it was right then and there, I went up to Vatos, hey, our drummer just gave his notice. You wanna play with us? And Vatos immediately jumped in, and that was the band. The trio was me, Johnny Vatos, and and Mike Tovar, and uh, and that was the band Eddie Vedder used to come and see, <laughs> and amongst other people. I mean, the uh, we used to play at Baba's, and uh, and people like Mitch Mitchell would come in, mm. uh, and and uh, I remember uh, we had this uh, our own kind of punk rock version of the song uh, Manic Depression okay. and I changed all the lyrics on it but it was the same melody and the same vibe but I uh, I called the song uh, Hispanic Depression <laughs> Hispanic Depression lives in my soul da -da 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 -da. and so Mitch Mitchell uh, heard you know he you know amongst other it was a real musicians band a lot of really great players would come in and we got to play that song with Mitch. Mitch actually came up and jammed it with us. We got I got to play Manic Depression with Mitch Mitchell, one of my uh, great moments. Right, right, and, right. And so I played with Food for Feet about four years. And, um, and, you know, playing, still playing around town and still doing gigs here and there, whatever. And, um, uh I got another offer for an audition for a tour with this guy. I can't remember his name, but he was a major label guy. Uh, I can't remember his name right now, but uh, it became, it came down to between me and another bass player who was going to get the gig. And he ended up going with the other bass player. And I was so bummed. It was like, oh man, I was going to make 800 bucks a week. And it was, you know, back then that, that was like solid money, you know, <laughs> and for a lot of musicians, that's solid money right now, you know? Right. And, yeah. and, uh, and so I was so bummed. I didn't get the gig, <laughs> but if I would have got that gig, that guy telling me no changed my life because about a week later, Johnny Vatos calls me up and says our bass player in Oingo Boingo uh, quit the band with the keyboard player, uh, Richard Gibbs. And so we're having auditions for bass players. Right. Yes. So I would have not been, I wouldn't have been in town. Right. Yeah. Right. So, so talk us through what you remember about that audition. Uh, it was a cattle call. Okay. Uh, I remember going in and there uh, they originally told. I think they told me they auditioned over a hundred bass players. Wow! Weeks, what? weeks of cattle calls. Yeah. And and um, one of the stories that, and I heard this from Danny. Okay. This is Elfman. This is Elfman telling me. Okay. So I'm just repeating the story he told me. Right. I went. I went into the audition, and there was a lot of bass players there that had long hair and kind of the gothy look. And they right. were like, you know, this was 1984. So, you know, glam rock and all sure, the, sure, the that was really happening. Uh, when I walked into the audition, I I was wearing a Pendleton with my, with my shirt like this, you know, I had tacky pants 
that went down there this far from the floor from my shoes and I had long white socks. I had my hair completely buzzed. I looked like a little gangbanger. And, <laughs> and 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 Danny says that he saw me and he was like, who's this guy? What's he, you know? And he went up to and asked the production people. I was like, what's that guy? Who's that guy? What's he doing here? He said he immediately noticed me because I stood out. And, and he, oh, John, Johnny Vatos invited that guy. His name's John. And... Um, yeah, he's auditioning. He plays that guy plays bass. He goes, yeah. So, uh, so they had given me about five songs to learn. I remember only a lad, and I don't know. I just remember it was like five songs. And you know, me being the practice guy, I really, you know, I was shedding them, and you know, I was ready to play them. I was ready to knock them out, you know. And so, uh, so Danny comes up. You know, okay, they call my name. So finally, you know, I go up and I had my bass, I plug in and I'm just about ready to play with the band. And then, so Danny asked me, you know, so which songs did you learn? And I pulled out this crumpled piece of paper out of my, out of my pocket and I unrolled it and I showed it to him. And I, I'll never forget this. Danny takes the piece of paper. He looks at it like this and he got it and he crumbled and rolled it and threw it over his shoulder. And he told me, he says, anybody can learn songs off a record he goes but i want to hear what you bring to the table oh <laughs> sure because okay. i want to we're just going to play some grooves and we want to see what you do and at that moment i was like i got this because jamming is like where i come from sure, is what I, I did my whole life from day yeah. one right Get, i spent hours and hours in garages with my friends after school jamming and I do that to this day, you know, I do jam tours and I do improv, I do improv tours right, right. and so jamming is part of what I, it's just part of my thing. So when they start grooving, man, I was just like, okay, let's, you know, and I just jumped right in. Danny was impressed enough to invite me to the, to a callback. Wow. And they, I think I, got, I had one other callback and then eventually he, I got a call one night and he said, yeah, we decided that, you, you know, and I tell, I tell students and young people when things don't work out that in music and in the industry, that doesn't mean you're, that's the end of the world. That only could mean that something even better is going to happen. And that's it, happened to me. It's those, it's those unanswered prayers, right? Sometimes that, that really. Absolutely. Uh, so, you know, that's the way this industry works and you just got to go with it. No, and, and so it worked out for me that time. So that decision changed my life. Yeah. And, and so all of a sudden I'm playing with Oingo Boingo and. And right. And so on that, on that note, right. The, the So Dead Man's Party was the first album you did with them. Right. Um, and 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 fast forward to in addition to playing bass, you co-produced uh, that came, that came later, and uh, that came uh, like a, the next album, okay. the, second, the next album after that, and that was for me. I was all of a sudden I'm in a you know Sunset Sound, the village, <laughs> right. the best studios in the world, and like even after I finished my bass tracks. And I didn't really have to be at the studio anymore. I would still show up almost every night because wow. I wanted to watch when they did horns. I wanted to watch yeah, when of course. I wanted to watch. And Danny Elfman and Steve Bartik were producing. They we did not have a producer 
that we hired. You know, we were, the band was producing or Danny and Steve were. <clears throat> and so one night, uh, Danny was doing lead vocals in the studio. And this was at, I believe it was pretty sure it was Sunset Sound. Yeah. And I'm and I would go and just be a fly on the wall and I'd be sitting on the couch in the back. And I remember Steve was producing as Danny was doing his lead vocals. And I'm in the back of the room and you know, I'm what ideas, parts and things come to me. That's part of being a producer. I didn't know at the time, but <laughs> that was still happening to me back then. I'd never produced a record or anything, but um this I this vocal idea came to me while Danny was singing. And I went up to Steve and I said, Steve, you know, you might want to try this, but I got this. Instead of Danny singing that, maybe try this, do this. And I went back and sat down and just kind of that was it, you know. And I'll never forget Steve presses the button. So Danny, uh, John thinks you should try it this way. You know, would you? maybe try it out you know danny sang and danny liked the idea danny danny was like wow that was good do you remember that what song that was i do not i do not okay. and so that night that very night i'm already home it's after midnight the phone rings and it's danny and danny says hey john um i, I want to do vocals again tomorrow and steve can't make it would you mind coming and sitting behind the board and help me uh, help me produce my vocals? And I said, well, yeah, yeah, I'll be there. That'd be awesome. You had experience in doing that? And I ended up, and so the very next night I went to the, to the session and all of a sudden I'm the guy, hey, that's great. Why don't you, hey, that's good. Well, I think you could do it better. Let's try it this way. All of a sudden I'm producing Danny's vocals. Thrown into the so, phone. Danny asked me if Danny, hey, come back. You know, Steve started coming. You know, of course, Steve was back and and hey, why don't you come? You know, I was showing up anyway. So now all of a sudden, I'm giving more input and 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 background vocals, things like that. And uh, so on that next record, I got my first production credit. They gave me the the credit of deputy vocal producer, and that was my first production credit. You were deputized. <laughs> yeah, I was deputized. I was the deputy producer for uh, with vocals being my my specialty. Wow. So after that album, we uh, one of the next album I think was uh, Boingo Alive. Yes, that, that was a double album. We recorded 32 songs in, and we did that record in 19 days. So, so, so here, th this is a perfect transition. And, 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 and I, I asked um, a, a fellow bassist who, you know, Tony Canal of no doubt fame. He's a good um, buddy. I, yes. He, he, and he's such a, such a great guy. So um, he, he's, he's called you a monster on the bass and, and, and Tony's as well. But his question is this, this is a perfect lead in. He says, Boingo Alive is one of the best live albums ever recorded, which I would agree. Wow. It is inspiring, flawless, and sounds spectacular. How many times did you all perform each songs, and did you guys do any studio fixes after the, the, after the live recordings? Just imagine 31 songs, or I don't know how many, there's over 30 songs. I think it's 30. One or 32 songs on that album. 
Yep. It was recorded and mixed in 19 days. Oh. And in we, and that was before Pro Tools was invented. Right. right. So all Oingo Boingo records were done on two-inch tape on analog. <clears throat> so there's no moving things Not around fun. or you could punch in a note here or there. But um, <clears throat> the fact that we did it like that in that amount of time. Yeah, um, impressive. There wasn't much you could do. Right. And, and um, it was on that album that Danny and Steve uh, uh, approached me and invited me to be a co-producer. Okay. And so from that album on, it, it was Oingo Boingo was produced by Danny Alpin, Steve Bartek, and John Avila. Right. And so now I was part of the production team. Yeah. And and um, I can't, you know, I can't say enough about uh, Danny's being generous in that way you know the new, newer guy or the new guy and and allowing me to do that yeah. and and it started my production career you know even without knowing it I was <laughs> I'm there working with Danny Elfin and Steve Bartek two freaking geniuses you right. know yeah. and I'm getting to absorb how they work and and becoming a part of that yeah and mm-hmm. and um and you can, I mean, you listen to the Boingo records. I, you know, being there when all that went down, I, cause I was there from that, when every note went down, I was there. And um, so that was like school for me. That was my East LA college, you know, <laughs> right. college, but all of a sudden I, I have my own college here. Absolutely. And uh, so uh, that was really a, an amazing I, mean, I could pick it down to those days when that happened. And, and so now Steve, you know, Danny just says, if you're here for everything, you're part, you're part of the team. Uh, so Boingo Alive was my first full production credit album. Right. And, and, you know, when we mixed it and, and, you know, there's another fun story about uh dead man's party. Uh, yeah. We did that at sunset sound and while, and we were in the same building and there's two studios, A and B, in this one building. Right. And and in the, under the same roof, Oingo Boingo's recording Dead Man's Party. In the next room, a wall away from us, was Prince recording <laughs> uh, 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 Purple Rain. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> wow. So, well, so we're... we're uh, we saw Prince every day and his, and his crew and his team. And our crew and our team were to get and we would often uh play basketball uh, and we would play games of horse and 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 uh you know, I, play? I can i can i can say i i played basketball with prince and oh. he kicked my ass <laughs> he was an amazing what basketball player Wow. And he was my size too. So hey, many, yeah. like, and the respect was mutual, right? The respect. Yeah, was yes. Yes. Wow. So I mean, it's it's amazing the these <laughs> fertile times that we were around. And I remember at one point we were mixing. Uh, um, I think it was the Boingo Alive album. It might have been. <clears throat> I think it was Boingo Alive, but we it, we were also in the same building, and in one room. Uh, it was Oingo Boingo mixing, and the next room was uh, Michael Jackson uh, mixing Billy Jean. Oh my goodness! Wow. And I knew his uh, some of his crew, 
And so, you know, him and, and you know, just knowing him and Quincy are in there. Sure, right. We didn't know the song that was going to change the world. Uh, but, you know, it was amazing being around fertile, fertile times like that. Oh, my goodness, Man. to say the least. Talking yeah. about getting inspiration. Yeah. So, uh, which leads to my next question, though. When did you open your recording studio, Brando's Paradise? And so, Brando's it located. It's in San Gabriel, and this is it right here. Oh, nice. And, and uh, Brando's Paradise, uh, it started off mainly where we, it started off rehearsing. And um, I remember um, Danny Elfman and I were at A&M Studios one night and we went there to master a record. We were mastering, I forget which record it was. Uh, I don't remember right now, but this Dave Collins was the mastering engineer. And he took us in there and we decided and, and we're there and we found there was something that was not right in that the way a song, the the uh, one of the songs was either too long and we wanted to cut something on it or the, the segue between the songs wasn't correct. And so, oh, we're going to have to go back to the studio and, and edit this and get it right and da da da. And Dave Collins was there and he says, oh, no, you, you don't have to do that. He goes, uh, I could do a digital edit right here. Yeah. He's like, a, a digital edit? He goes, yeah. <laughs> and so in that A&M studio, I saw my first digital waveform. And, and it was two, two tracks, you know, left and right. And we watched Dave Collins do an edit right there with on a computer. And we watched him do that. And, and you know, back in the day, you would have to cut tape and oh, right. of you can't miss and da-da-da. And, and Danny and I were like, I was in tears. I was like, oh, my God, that's incredible. So the session ended, and I remember Danny and I were looking at the gear. And so what's the, what's the software and what's the computer and da-da-da? Oh, well, this is – and Danny and I are writing this stuff <laughs> down. And we what, walked what out – What year would that have been, roughly? Mm. I would say around 86, 87, maybe. Yeah. And and uh so we left AM Studios. We went straight to a to a computer store and went to and we bought everything and we took that stuff home. <laughs> and, and that's when I started my digital world, you know. And I didn't get Pro Tools until a little later. That's a whole nother story, but um that actually happened with Real Big Fish when I got into uh, on the second album. Okay. But uh, the first album was actually recorded to digital tape. Oh. That was not done on Pro Tools. What you hear on, on Turn the Radio Off yeah. was what they played. And, and that's a perfect transition here, too. So, so talk about how you met the guys and how that came about with Real Big Fish. The first time I heard the name of the band, uh, we had this... Uh, uh, we had this... Uh, uh, this this guy that was working as an assistant to our production team, his name was Vince Pelleggi. Yeah. And Vince ended up being their long, he was their longtime manager, you know. And uh, and so Vince was my driver at one point. And he was driving me to, uh, I remember he, he, had a, he, he was given the task of driving me to do interviews. And, and I'm sitting in the back seat and, and, and Vince, you know, he's driving and, you know, and, and hey, uh, hey, John, 
you know, uh, I manage this band and I, he, and he tells me, he goes, they're really big in Hawaii. I was like, oh, really? I go, yeah. And, and he goes, here's a CD of them. And I remember listening and I real big fish and, and, and I took the CD and I remember listening to it. And I remember being very rough, you know, they were young. And I just remember it being a very rough sounding recording and, you know, it wasn't like the real big fish that would end up, you know, come a few years later. But I just remember that them sounding really young, but I loved the spirit of it. Uh, and so uh, sometime after that, that same manager uh, production people that was that Vince was working for, uh, um, it was, well, Oingo Boingo, let's move forward to 95. And Oingo Boingo, we did our farewell concerts at Universal. And, the, and we did our farewell album and the, the band was, was done. And, you know, up to that point, you know, with along with all the other bands from that time, I did my first gig with Santana till then, uh, you know, touring was all I, I had done. And um, so... I started Brando's Paradise and I started doing local bands. I remember just I, at that time, because I was still learning how to mix and record, you know, and taking the knowledge I had gotten from working with Boingo, but now I'm doing it myself. And I remember taking notes. Hey, what mic did you use? Da, da, da. Oh, I have a 57 on the, on the snare. And what's that compressor? Oh, that's an ADL. And, oh, you got to get that if you want the kick to sound like this. And I was like, so I, I ended up going out and buying a lot of this gear and, uh, and started making my, little studio here i started building the gear and the microphones and because i was so new and i was doing it myself i didn't want the pressure of charging people money and having it not sound very good because i was still learning how to do it hands-on right and, um, so uh my i remember my niece christina she was a big music fan and she knew all the really cool bands in the in the neighborhood. And I'm talking around San Gabriel, Temple City, Pasadena. And she started bringing these bands to me. And 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 I if I walked into a bar and saw or a club and saw a band and I liked them, I would say, hey, you want to you want to record? I'll do it. I'll do it for free. Uh... For free. I say, yeah. And I would say for like a couple of years. Um, I never charge anyone any money. Lucky, lucky bands, yeah. Yeah, you know, it didn't always sound great, but you know, I was learning and I was getting my skills, you know, in, on the job yeah, training, right? On the job training. And um, and so that's how I started getting better. And 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 um uh and then, you know, so back to real big fish. Um my this manager at the time. Uh, uh says you know there's this band called real big fish they got they just got signed to mojo records universal i was like you mean that real big fish vince's band you oh yeah that's the band i was like what i was like she uh, i was like they didn't sound that good on the recording that i don't know she goes well they they're they're hitting you up uh they would love to talk to you about possibly producing them it's like I don't know, you know. She kind of had to talk me into it. She goes, and they're rehearsing at a club, at a at a rehearsal place downtown. She goes, why don't you go give them a listen and see what you think, you know? So I ended up going down, and sure enough, 
they did not sound like they did. They had, they had matured. All of a sudden, they're like, they the turn the radio off songs, you know? Yes. They were still rough around the edges. We hadn't recorded them yet. The arrangement still needed work. And um, so they had gotten signed with this, uh, uh, the, the the guy that owned the label, uh, it was Mojo Records, Jay Rifkin. Mm -hmm. And Jay Rifkin called me in and, uh, and says, yeah, man, we, so him and I actually co-produced that first album. Okay. And, and uh, Jay kind of ran, you know, he was, he would come in. I was kind of more the, I was there all day and Jay would come in and, make suggestions and do stuff and then he would leave and then I we would keep working but uh Jay was also very involved with the production and working on the arrangements and things like that but uh this band uh they had something going on and I could tell that you know that that sense that I have when something special is happening I really it got the sense that we were onto something especially when their songs, you know, when they, when we started working on their songs and recording them and the musicianship too. I mean, you listen to the, the, the rhythm section and Aaron Barrett's guitar playing Aaron Barrett. I have to tell you on that first album, he recorded all the guitar parts and all the solos in one day. Wow. Impressive. Yeah. Incredible. Yes. I mean, he was flawless, like just incredible guitar playing. So the musicianship was just incredible. Yeah. And uh, uh, and so that album, which which uh, had sellout, which was a huge break. It was sellout. And, and you know, beer, I think beers on that record. Uh, uh, there, I mean, I can't remember all the songs on there, but that uh, and and the album, I, I the CD had just come out. At the time, I had a, a, a my daughter was 16 years old. My oldest daughter was 16 years old, and she was going to Gabrielino High School in San Gabriel. And one day she comes up to me. She goes, "Dad, you produced that that band called <laughs> Fish." I go, "Yeah." She goes, "Everybody in my school loves that band," <laughs> and I'm kind of like getting a lot of. People are coming up to me. Your dad produced that band, right? And 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 in her high school, Real Big Fish was huge. And I was, oh my God! If the high school kids are into this, this yeah, is you're on, you're on. <laughs> and and uh, and so uh, I went. I'll never forget this too. I went to my daughter's homecoming football game, and they had their big homecoming football right. game and the and then they had the 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 halftime and thing and during the halftime the high school band played uh uh uh, uh turn the turn the radio off they or they they played uh uh sellout right, right. <laughs> and uh that was really I'm incredible sure right you know and yeah. so anyway, that record came out and sure enough, it's on K-Rock and yeah, it was and this whole ska, uh, they call it the second wave of ska. Yeah, third wave. Third, third wave. wave of ska yeah. took off. And, um, yeah, they, and were, they were one of the ones at the forefront for sure. Yeah. And and so that meeting being both. in the right place at the right time. Yes, mm -hmm. exactly. And you did both. Both are the, the two albums? I did Turn the Radio Off also. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. 
So yeah. take your time with uh Boingo prepare you for producing scare. I'm sorry, what what was that? Did the time that you spent uh with Boingo prepare you mentally, spiritually, and psychologically to um produce scare? I I I think it def I had a knack for horns. Right. You know, I, just, I was I I remember when I played for eleven years with Boingo, the horn section was always right behind me, and uh, that power of that horn section, I mean, I heard it every night right there, bam, and, uh, and that and vocal arrangements, you know, just things, years and years of just hearing incredible horn parts, right, um, that just came out when I was producing them. Uh, and you know, working on the horn sections and 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 parts, and I guess that did prepare me definitely in I, a big I, way. I would imagine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I want to take you back to uh, 1999, just before the start of the new millennium. How was it working with uh, uh, Cooley Ranks? Uh, yes, Cooley. Oh man, I love Cooley and the Pilfers, right? <laughs> I worked with the Pilfers. And I, I mean, after I did Real Big Fish, a lot of ska bands were calling oh, I'm me. Sure, right. Yeah. And unbelievably, produce, I, produce a hit for us. <laughs> they called. They were some guys were calling me Scavila, and 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 uh, uh, what was that? I was quite proud. I was quite proud of that actually, Scavila. Yeah. And and uh, and all of a sudden, I uh, one of the next bands I did was Voodoo Glow Skulls. Right, yeah, yes. I, I, I got to do uh, Band Geek Mafia, and you know the three brothers, uh, uh, Frank and and George and and Eddie, were incredible band, and uh, and I and that and so that album actually was the first album I ever mixed, oh. uh, uh, which is interesting. I I had been you know my mixing was getting better with some of the the local bands I was working with but uh, uh that was on Interscope no not Interscope that was on um uh, uh, uh Epitaph Records oh yes yes and yes. And, and uh Epitaph called and said you know could you know we had finished the record and could you send uh roughs of the of the songs uh cuz we're looking for someone to mix and so I spent one day mixing 12 or 13 songs. I forget how many songs are on that record, but um, I, I, I probably half an hour, 40 minutes a song. And I did it all day. And, and I sent those to, to Epitaph. And the next day I get a call from, from the, the label and the band. And they were saying, John, we really like the way this sounds. We'd like for you to mix it and just kind of finish what you've done, you know? And so I mixed that record uh, <laughs> and I started mixing from that point on. Wow. And, and I just, and, you know, during COVID, I mixed Cooley Ranks' new album. Right. Oh, nice. So, uh, during COVID, I was, I had nothing else to do here. So people were sending me albums to mix and that was one of them. Wow. But anyway, Cooley came in to do a set. Uh, he did a, a, what was the song? Uh, 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 What's the song he's on? He uh, he's on one of the real big fish songs. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I can't think of it, but I but but I know. Right, so that's where that's where you met him. Yeah, and that's when I met Cooley, and 
Uh, and, you know, I was producing, so I'm doing my job. I'm just giving them ideas. Oh, let's try this. That's great. Let's try that. Da, da, da. And, and Cooley and I just hit it off. And Cooley says, man, I just love working with you. Uh, nice. We do something in the future. So then the Pilfers got signed to Mojo and they hit me up and I got, I went to New York and, and did their record. And right. we did that record at, at uh, uh, Jimi Hendrix's studio. Wow. Uh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> and uh, uh, um, uh, uh, anyway, we did it at Hendrix's studio, which was yeah. just incredible thrill and honor in the village. I was gonna, yeah, I knew of it. I knew I had it too. No, electric, uh, electric Ladyland. Yes, yes, sorry, yes. sorry, Jimmy. Electric Ladyland, and uh, so the, I mean that was a thrill just working there. And I come to find out later, like Stevie Wonder's biggest albums were recorded there, right. yeah, and yeah, endless yeah. records that were recorded there. And uh, <laughs> one of the things I remember about that studio is that. In the back, uh, there's a the control room and above it, and it's down a basement. It's like you have to go, it's down in a basement. You have to go down these stairs to get to it. And they had this huge mur mural of Jimi Hendrix playing guitar. And uh, and the only problem is it's Jimi Hendrix playing guitar as a right-handed guitar player. Oh, no. <laughs> in his own studio. <laughs> And apparently he had hired somebody to do it and he left on tour and the guy didn't know he played ended. Uh, so anyway, that's one really great memory of working there. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, the you know, and I got to work with uh, Voodoo Glow Skulls. I got to do uh, a record with Neville Staple with uh, yeah, a right around that time. And I've always stayed in touch with Neville, great guy. Yes. And then and then it came full circle. You work with Madness. A band that you yeah, heard that, as you were heading band, you know, and it's always uh people like your work and um and madness came around. I got a I got I did this album, I did three albums with the band uh 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 Mariachi El Bronx. Oh, yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Amazing yeah. band up uh, and they're from the band The Bronx. Yes. And I, I did three albums with them and it was the second album. Uh, I get a call. Uh, they Madness was trying to find me and apparently they oh. couldn't find me. I'm not the easiest guy to find. Apparently I'm not good at social media or whatever, yeah. but they called my school where I was teaching uh, at uh, Los Angeles College of Music because they they probably went did research and they oh John teaches at this university at this college, so they called the college and one one of the secretaries John this somebody's trying to reach you this band called these people called Madness, and they were really young that you know the person who and didn't know the band right. they named Madness it's like Madness and all of a sudden I get a call. And Madness really liked the 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 Mariachi Al Bronx album, the right. second album. And they said, we would love for you to do something with our band, uh, you, doing what you did with Mariachi Al Bronx. So great. <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> so all of a sudden, you come full circle <laughs> to me stepping off the plane. Yeah, and right. Carrying right. <laughs> right. one step beyond. <laughs> In addition, he also worked with... Uh... Uh, St. Ferris, Wood of Ghost Club, and uh, 
couple other bands. Right, yeah, Saint right. Ferris came later. That actually came about four or five years ago. Right. Uh, uh, Monique Powell. Right. Yeah. Right. I know. Reformed. Right. Right. You know, she's in the ska world. You know, she's a ska superstar. Yeah. And and and, and uh, you know that. And I love Saint Ferris. They're just an incredible band. And so yeah. I got and I got to do their album right here at Randall's Paradise. Oh, nice. Mm. Yeah. And. Uh, you also excuse my uh allergies. Yeah. No, no, no. I'll join good. the club. I know it's not I a know. good same, club to be in. Same here. Yeah. We both, right? Well, I'll take a drink. Yes. Yeah, uh, we both right. Also, um a group called uh Mexico's Sector 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 Yeah. We can't leave them out. Sector man. One of the most, they're incredible band. Yeah. And they were fans of the Voodoo Glow Skulls. And they, that's how they met me. And they knew the Voodoo Glow Skull guys. And uh, and so they hit me up, you know, would you come to Mexico to do a record with us? And I went to Mexico City and we recorded that album at Vicente Fernandez's studio. Oh, wow. the, the icon, you know, Mexican singer. Yeah. And um, and those guys, man, uh, uh, they were just musically so so incredible. Yes. I'm very very proud of that album. Too. You know, one of my favorite albums I've done. Yeah, yeah. Mexico City and Juniors. You've taken a number of trips down there. Too many to come. I mean, the ska scene down. The ska scene down there is, and to this day, the Latinos love ska. Uh -huh. it, it's huge. Mexico City and yeah. bands like Real Big Fish. I mean, and and Monique Powell with Safe Ferris, They go down there. They're like they're like Michael Jackson when they go down there. Yeah, no, it's it's huge. And Junior's also been bringing uh, a lot of the the Jamaican, uh, you know, ska rock steady early reggae legends. Yeah, they're doing huge business. Whether you know the Stranger mm -hmm. Coles and uh, a number of them, mm -hmm. Clarendonians, yeah, Maytones. It's 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 just it's wild. Mm -hmm. It's wild. Yeah. So 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 you touched on Mariachi. El Bronx, uh, Quetzal. Talk about working with them. Quetzal, um, you, you, I know, got, you got a little award from them, didn't you? I did. Yeah. I mean, that was um, they. They. I met them. Uh, I met them. The um, uh, the bass player for for um, uh, for for. Um, it was the bass player for um give me one second. Yes. We might have to cut. Uh, <laughs> uh, I can't remember right now. My my it'll mind come to, it'll come to you. All good. So hit me up to mix and I'll remember his name. He hit me up to mix uh a, a compilation album. Okay. Uh, of local LA bands, especially the East LA bands, nice. and and uh, and so they came over here to to and asked me to mix the record, which I did. <clears throat> and so after I mixed each song, the bands would come in to hear the mixes, and all these different bands came to Brando's Paradise, including Quetzal. Mm -hmm. And I never met them because I wasn't there when when they recorded. I was just there for the mixing. Right. And they came in and and that's when I met them. 
and they 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 were really happy with the mix and they were happy with you know as we just kind of hit it off and uh and so i got to to uh do a record with them i did their first album their first full-length album and their third album yeah really and, and yeah they won they were voted one of the top 10 uh uh, uh bands of uh of that year i think it was 2003 or four <laughs> along with bruce springsteen and all the you two all these incredible bands and they were right in there la uh, times critics pick Yes, congratulations to you as well yeah. for your role. And and especially that kind of, of an award for just uh, an incredible, incredible band, but not Bruce Springsteen, you right. know, They're right. not of that, you know, level of, of popularity. Of and it's awesome that the Times, you know, they feature bands like that. They give people like that some some credit, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, they went on to win Grammy. Yes. Uh, all did so i mean they're an incredible band right mm -hmm. yeah. um any plans to work with uh la bands uh on the scat scene that play more traditional yeah and, and maybe fast growing i'm quite sure aware of some of them that you numerous to mention um you know for me i get into the ska mood and I like to like turn, I like, I'll go on, 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 uh, on, you know, the, the radio that you get on Spotify or on, yeah. yeah. Uh, 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 and, and, and I just turn it on and I just take it in. And, and um, I mean, I, when I hear that music, I feel like, uh, like, and they call it a lot of it, they call dance hall or they call, you know, the rock steady and all that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. And, yeah. I I just wish I was a fly on the wall to watch <laughs> as they did it because it's so pure it's so just rich in this cultural uh this essence that they had the way it's it's just beautiful music right. the grooves and the and the lyrics and uh, just incredible and I know reggae comes from a, a, a is a big part of that and and um you know I've always been a fan of of reggae and and I remember the first time I heard reggae. Uh, Is it in uh, Germany? I'm guessing. No, actually, it was way earlier. It was before that. There's a band in my in, in from San Gabriel Valley called the Delgado Brothers, oh. and oh. and they saw Bob Marley play at the Roxy. Oh mm. yes, the famous. And and they were there, and all of a sudden they wanted to be the next reggae band, and so they were learning all these reggae tunes. They're now like they're they're an award winning band also, but yes. their style yeah. is more blues now. Right. Uh, so I uh, this friend of mine, he was actually one of the guys I took to hear Van Halen. Okay, interesting. It was one of the guys in that car when I said we're I'm taking to hear the next Hendrix. Uh -huh. This one of these guys, uh, his name was Sam, invited me uh, uh, to come hear this band, the Dalgada Brothers. I never met them, and they played reggae. And they did a whole set of reggae, and I'd never heard Bob Marley before. I didn't know they played any reggae back then. Yeah, and uh, it it just blew me away. And and I always I always tell them that actually when I tell them, the first time I ever heard reggae was you guys playing it. Uh and then, of course, they go, oh, you got to check out this guy, Bob Marley. And then it was, forget him, it was off. Right. And then it was off, yeah. yeah. The baptism. John, talk about um, 
meeting and and working with the amazing drummer Stuart Copeland of the police. Stuart, oh, that was incredible, of course. You know, I'm such a hero. Uh, uh, there, he's one of my heroes, I should say. And and uh, the police. Uh, um, I uh, the the one thing about the police when I was I I when they played at Madame Wong's where Food for Feet used to play, they played Madame Wong's. Wow. And, and I've, I've read stories of Sting talking about them driving up with all their gear in a station wagon. Right. And they went in and they hauled their gear up the stairs to play at, at Madame Wong's. I wasn't there, but my roommate at the time went to see this band called The Police. And the next morning I, I come out uh, I walked out and he had a bumper sticker that said the police. It was just the police in block letter, nothing fancy, no fancy. It was just the police. And I went and I was laughing. I was like, dude, you got a bumper star. You're the police. Like, oh, that's great. They're never going to pull you over. You're the police. You know, he goes, no, no, no. That's a band. That's a band. I was like, what? He goes, yeah, I went last night and saw this band at Madame Wants called the police. And I was like, that's a cool name. I like that, you know? So that was the first time I heard the of the name the police. And of course, when you know, when when uh uh when their music started getting played, it was like and then I, you know, in playing in clubs, I started playing a lot of their songs. But uh my manager, it was the manager of Boingo Boingo, uh called me up, says, Hey, uh, Stuart Copeland's got this gig. He's going to be playing at, uh, at the NAMM show. He's doing a big concert and, uh, he, you're invited to play bass on it. If you want, you know, of course, are you kidding? And so I, I remember going to, and wasn't playing, uh, police music. It was playing his, his orchestral music, the stuff he does for his, for his film scores. And, uh, so it was a little bit outside of my wheelhouse, if you know what I mean, you know, I, uh, and so uh, I remember I had, uh, they wanted me to only play upright bass. I play upright bass, but it's not what I do best, I would say, you know, and uh, so I had to bring an upright bass. And, and in fact, at that time, I didn't even have that one. I had an electric upright bass. And the music was very challenge, challenging for me, I remember, but um, I got through the first rehearsal, I remember, and I remember calling my wife, I said, if I get through this first rehearsal, you're going to make it, I'm, I'm going to do this gig, you know, and, and, uh, and I did, and then I did the second rehearsal, and then we did the gig, and, and one of the things I remember about his playing is everyone had charts, including myself. Right. And he had he had string players and oboe players and he had a conductor, you know, it was like orchestral music. Hmm. And and I'm like, you know, hanging on for dear life, you know, and uh, and the first rehearsal, I remember he played a certain way. He did it. You know, he did his thing. Right. And the next rehearsal, you know, everyone had charts, but him, he played it completely different the second time. <laughs> like completely different and then the then when we did the gig he did he played completely different from the first two times he played before right. he's completely original player 
And I, and I imagine, I, I mean, I wasn't there when he did, of course, when he did this, the the police session, but I only know working with him. Yeah. That, um, he's really about the moment. Mm -hmm. yes. Live in the moment. Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. So, John, uh, you've worked with a significant number of uh, top names, legends. Is there anyone that you're literally dying to work with at this juncture of your life? You know, a beetle would be amazing. All <laughs> right. Okay. There's a one in Southern California. One, there's a couple I just got off my bucket list in the last like five years. One was Neil Young. Never, mm -hmm. never heard of him. Yeah, he was one. I mean, wow. when I, from the time I was in high school on, uh, and I in listening to Cosby Stills, Nash and Young, <clears throat> Cosby Stills and Nash, and that Laurel Canyon, yeah, that whole scene, the way they did vocals, the way they arranged the harmonies and all that, yeah. I got so into it. Harmonies are something that I. I love singing harmonies. I love barbershop quartets, you know, and and even in the reggae songs, you always hear these beautiful background vocals. When Bob Marley's singing, you hear these incredible background singers yep. singing all these beautiful parts. And I, I just love all of that. And so um, it, part of which amazing thing about being a teacher uh, and and working with super talented young up and coming uh, musicians uh, when they're just getting started. Uh, one of my first students that I, I was teaching at Citrus College, I was teaching a production class at Citrus College. They have a multi-million dollar studio there. And they the school gave me a band of students to work with me as I was working in the production, working on songs, arranging uh, the songwriting department, whatever. And this one drummer, his name was Anthony. And one day Anthony chased me out to my car as I was getting in my car to, to give me his card. And, and I remember him running, hey, you know, I was about to drive away. He's come back, wait, wait, wait. I say, like, hey, he goes, hey, uh, I just wanted to give you my card. If you ever need a drummer, please call me. And I said, well, thank you, Anthony. His name was Anthony Logerfo. And I took his car and I go, thank you, Anthony. Uh, uh, I'll keep that in mind. I stuck it in my wallet and I drove away. I drove 20 minutes to my house in San Gabriel. I walk into my living room and there's my daughter, who's a, a, an incredible uh, vocalist, professional singer, L.A., tour you know she's done a bunch of stuff she was 16 years old at the time and and to tell you her level the next very next year after that she was invited to sing at the Montreux Jazz Festival My goodness. and she did a couple of years after that I mean she was like that and so she's sitting at the she's at the piano playing and and I had my upright bass I had this bass by that time and her and I are She's on the piano and she's singing. I got my bass and we're jamming. And, and dad, it would be great if we had a drummer right now. <laughs> I said, this kid just gave me his card. 
I go, let me call him. She goes, give him a call. So 20 minutes after Anthony gave me his card, I called him up and I said, hey, Anthony, you said you want to play. I, I go, uh, he goes, yeah. I go, well, how about right now? Right now? I go, right now. Can you come over and bring your drums? He goes, I'll be right over. A call from a professor? <laughs> wow. So my student, Anthony, came over to the house and I have basically been playing with him ever since. And Anthony ended up uh, bringing this kid, 19-year-old kid named Lucas, Lucas Nelson. Oh. And Lucas is the son of Willie. Yeah. yeah. And with the incredible promise of the real group. Yeah. Yes. And so Luke, uh, so Anthony brought young Lucas Nelson, 19 years old, and I got to produce his first EP. And and uh, and I did his first album, and I also recorded and co-produced their third album over at Willie's studio. Mm. And so I got, I was there at the beginning of Promise of the Real when they, their first thing they ever did, and and um, so Lucas and Anthony, uh, we were playing at. Uh, oh, there was a, they have a regular bass player, Corey McCormick, who's a dear friend of mine, is one of the, my favorite bass players. There was a he got married and he wanted to take a little time off for, you know, for his honeymoon and all that. And the band was real busy at the time. So they asked me if I would play bass for them. So one of the gigs we did was uh, Farm Aid oh. at, at, in Milwaukee in front of 80,000 people. Yes. And I'm playing with Promise of the Real, and we're playing, and there, and off to the side is Dave Matthews, Neil Young. John uh, Mellencamp, right? Yeah, and they're standing right there watching us rock out in front of 80,000 people. And apparently, Neil, uh, Neil just thought Lucas was amazing. And, and, uh, uh, and I, uh, I don't know, eventually, uh, the, the, uh, Promise of the Real ended up becoming his band. Yes, yeah, I, I've seen them uh, a couple times play. Yeah, and and I got and then another time I got to tour when I did the third album. I got to tour with them for three months when 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 uh, Corey became a dad for the first time, and they he took a couple of months off and I jumped in and I and they said, Hey, John, you want to come come out with us? I left my house. I didn't come home for three months. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> And uh, and I did, you know, did a whole bunch of gigs with them touring. And 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 so anyway, um, one day I was at school teaching a class and I get a call from Anthony and Anthony calls and says, hey, um, uh, Corey can't make a gig. He had another thing going on. Uh, would you could you come to Paris and play with Neil? And so all of a sudden, this kid that chased me out to my card, uh, to my car to give me his card, was responsible for me playing, getting to play and hang and rehearse and do a, a gig in Paris with Neil Young. I mean, I mean, the right place at the right time. It is so true. That yeah. happens. That happens a lot. Yeah. I could go on. There's more stories. With I that. Can so, so, John, let, let's now jump to 2005. Um, when Johnny Vatos formed former members, uh, yes, sorry, Oingo Boingo former members, um, and then you joined, right? So was it a, was it an easy decision for you to to join your old uh, bandmates? 
or was it a difficult one? And how much it's, fun are you having doing this? At the when, at the very beginning of it, I was really busy, you know, with the production, a lot of producing, and and you know that's a, that's one of the things about from say ninety five to two thousand five, two thousand ten. Uh, I was almost only producing and only doing gigs once in a while here or there. And uh, by choice, huh? That was by choice. Pretty much by choice that I was really into it and I was doing well. And, and, you know, it was creatively really fun time. I, I, and I wasn't playing as, as much, but I was still getting a lot of satisfaction doing that. And a lot of these younger musicians, you know, I, you know, I'm kind of been around a while by that time. And, and so I, a lot of younger musicians were, when they were first coming up, I got to work with them. And um, so when, when John did ask me at the, the way we started off was he was very open. He goes, John, just do whatever you want. If you want to just come one gig, if you want to show up and just do one song, or come up and do a couple of songs as a special guest. You could do that. Or if you want to come and do gigs, if not, he had his son uh, who still plays with the band. Uh, Freddie Hernandez still plays with the band. Ooh. And um, so we always had Freddie there to play any gigs that I couldn't to this day. And, wow. uh, and uh, so it was uh, the more the band started doing things, the more I was having fun. And I have to tell you, we just did, a bunch of gigs in October and the band is just Johnny Vatos doesn't sound to me any different than That's he did in 1985. Right. He sounds if not better, he sounds better. Well, he on, has to be better, of course, right? He yeah. actually sounds better on the drums now than he did in 85. Right. Of course, of course. So, I mean, I get the same satisfaction. And when we finish a gig, I am absolutely drenched yeah. after every gig right. I ever played with the right. band. And how many how many members uh, are in this group that were in Oingo Boingo? Well, there's Steve, the main are Steve Bartek, guitar lead guitar player, uh, um, uh, Sam Phipps, the main sax player who did all the sax solos. He was uh, you know one of the main sax yep. uh, horn players, and Carl Graves on okay. keys. Yeah. Uh, who's on a, a couple you know he's on most of the last couple of albums, right. and, and so that that's the main core of the band. Yeah. And but with the band that's together now has been together 15 years. Yeah. And, and, you, guys, and you guys sound incredible. And, and then there's this other uh this singer uh um uh, uh who uh who I met through uh Bear McCrary, who is a uh he's a film composer, and that's a whole nother story. Uh, uh Bear McCrary's uh uh he did Battlestar Galactica, uh, uh Walking Dead, and all these. Uh, um, I met I met Bear before I met Brandon. Uh, so uh, Bear uh, uh, came up to me one night. He was going. He came to see me and John Vatos play at the Old Town Pub in Pasadena, uh, <laughs> where, where John and I used to play a bunch of really great gigs. And one night, this Bear McCrary came up to me, and and he was still going to USC, and he and he hands me a CD, and he says, you know, this is what I do uh, uh, for my film work. I'm doing student films and things like that. And I said, oh, okay, nice to meet you, you know. And 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 I left home, and on the way home from the gig, I listened to some of the CD, and I listened to the rest in the morning. I called him up the next morning around ten in the morning, 
And I said, Bear, mm -hmm. I said, what you're doing is incredible. This is mm -hmm. really, your talent is something else. I said, I would love to work with you on future things you got going on or anything I could do to help you. If you have projects you're working on, you need a bass player. I go, I would love to, to work with you and help you. And uh, so we started doing things, student films, uh, indie films, uh, you know, just things, you know. He ends up getting the gig to do Battlestar Galactica on sci-fi with Edward James almost. And yeah, he calls me up and I ended up uh, doing five seasons of Battlestar Galactica with Bear. So Bear, <laughs> coming from Bear came Brandon, Brandon McCreary. And Brandon is, in my opinion, the only singer in the world who can do Oingo Boingo uh, besides Danny. Uh, that's a high compliment. The album in our band. Right. And and watching him grow as a performer too has been incredible. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, I've I, I've had the pleasure of seeing you all perform. <laughs> so so going going back to um Oingo Boingo, what what did did the success of the of the group surprise you? With Oingo Boingo? You know, uh <clears throat> That's an interesting question. I don't know if I've ever been asked that. If I used to be. Um, when I joined the band, yes. we were doing the, we could fill a theater, you know, and we were doing some opening slots for different bands. Right. But it wasn't like it ended up after Dead Man's Party. It wasn't that. Right. So, <clears throat> I got to see the growth of that. I saw in Oingo Boingo when I joined, it started here. And it wasn't like a lot of bands, you have a big hit record, it's like that, and then you're back to here, or you're gone, and then you're gone. You no know, one hears from you again. Oingo Boingo for me was like this. Yeah. Yes. It was just a gradual. It started here when I started, and right. the band ended, it was right here. Yeah. And, and, when the band ended, we were doing 120,000 tickets in LA over an eight day period, you know, 20,000 a night. Yeah. And also, and also if you think about the, uh, you know, prior to my, to my Jamaican music obsession, you know, I was, I was all about uh, the, you know, new wave and so much of the eighties music, not, not that many bands could transition from the eighties into the nineties. Um, and, 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 and then there are a lot of bands and, and I still love it. You know, there's a lot of nostalgia, but a lot of bands from the eighties were sounded dated, right. Or, 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 or a lot of people do think so, but Oingo Boingo definitely made that transition and, and it just incredible. I mean, that, that a lot, a lot of it is just not being afraid of right. doing something different. Well, new ideas. I mean, even Dead Man's Party was so different from the first two albums. True. Yes. And a lot, it turned a lot of fans off because they were into no, the right. because lack of and, you know, they was and they still mosh, don't get me wrong, because <laughs> we still do a lot of those songs, yeah. you know, to this day. And uh but it I don't know, it was a little it, I was the new guy, so it wasn't for much for me. It wasn't much of a transition, although I really love the fast, frantic, punky 
crazy songs but and then like dead man's party i remember hearing it and well when we first started rehearsing it and i knew it was different i to this day i've never really heard a song that sounds like that it's so it's so different 100 percent true yeah and and i remember uh like like Danny had written, Danny told me, uh, and I may be wrong, but he told me he started the song with the bass line. He wrote that bass line. I did not write that, but he had it on the computer and, and the band was going to go with the computer version of the, of the bass. And I remember, you know, telling Danny and we were playing, we were starting to play it live. Yeah. And I remember they hand me this guitar, <clears throat> bass, uh-huh. like a guitar. They said, here, you're going to play this. I'm like, I I didn't even know how to hold it or anything. <laughs> I remember getting it and like, you know, like Herbie Hancock and guys <laughs> like George Duke were playing yeah. it like, like a guitar right. with their hand over the front of it. And that just didn't feel right to me. And I was like, I'm just... And I remember, I remember the very first time I got it, I was just, and I got the strap and I moved it around. And instead of playing with my hand like this, I made, I made it so that the bass kind of went straight up and down. And I had my arm around the back of the instrument. And now I'm playing the notes with both hands uh-huh. this way. So I'm playing Dead Man's Party like boom, da, and and that's based on an African uh, groove. Wow! Danny was very influenced by African music. He yeah, went right. he went to Mali at one point and, <laughs> and lived in and and traveled through Africa. He just loved African culture and the instruments and the the grooves there, the juju music and all the crazy you know cool stuff that came out of there. And and um, so. I was playing the song live, you know, and I begged and begged. I go, Danny, before you mix this, let me have a shot of playing it on the actual track instead of having the computerized bass on there. And the very last thing that was recorded on that song was my bass playing uh, on there, literally right before they mixed it. And which track did they use? Your bass playing? They used my bass, yeah. Yeah. So now that we're wow. at, we're at the tail end of uh, 2023, it's approaching 2024. What does the new year uh, look like for Oingo Boingo former members? Or and or for you, or and for you as well with any other projects, Sean? Well, I'm I'm constantly working, doing things. I see uh, One of <laughs> There's been a couple of things, you know, one recent thing uh, I, I record on a lot of different, I just recorded four songs on Bear McCrary's new uh, album that he's going to have coming out. It's a, it's a metal album or it has metal influence, like okay. orchestral metal. Uh, and, and there's, there's a lot of really great in, uh, musicians that are going to be on that record. And okay. I got to play on four songs. I got a couple of bass solos on it. Right. So that, I'm very proud of being on really cool stuff like that. Uh, um, one of the really cool things is uh, I got, I play in a, another band with Steve Bartek. We have a band called Jackie O. Oh, 
Okay. And, and, and uh, with uh, 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 David Raven on guitar on dr on drums, and Ira Ingber, uh, a guitar player who played with Captain Beefheart and played with Bob Dylan in the '80s. He's on like two or three uh, Dylan oh. albums. Yeah. And <clears throat> Dylan uh, hit uh, 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 Ira up to help him put a band together for his new album that he was going to be doing. And Ira was able to get me on the record. And Steve Bartik is actually on a song. But I got to play on about half of Bob Dylan's new album that just came out. Amazing. <laughs> I'll, I'll listen to it. That's so cool. Yeah. So, I mean, there's really cool things happening, you know, <laughs> different things. And um, that becomes effortlessly. <laughs> yeah. It's just, just things, you know. And, uh, and uh, one of the things I'm enjoying almost more uh, more than anything is playing live and uh you know doing all the boingo oingo boingo form remember uh uh gigs we do we're still selling out uh uh uh, uh shows all over yeah, Southern know, doing great business, yeah. and i've been touring with this uh blues rock guitar player walter trout yeah. and walter you find time <laughs> You know, it's Don't unbelievable. Lazy. <laughs> two nights ago, uh, uh, two nights ago, I played Tampa, Florida, and I finished. I just finished a three-week tour of shows. Uh, we did. I just finished a twenty-city tour, and uh, sold out every night. We were mostly theaters, but you know, just amazing gigs. And I played uh, Tampa, Florida, on Saturday, on Sunday night. Uh, I flew. I had a seven a.m. flight uh in the morning my wife picked me up uh from uh, from uh, uh flyaway and took me directly to school to teach classes all oh day. my goodness <laughs> i didn't even get to go home oh, until later wow. that evening yeah and you slept on the that, plane I hope. that was yesterday oh, and, i hope you slept on the plane <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and I don't, you know, it, uh, so yeah, my, it's crazy the, how I try to make things up, yeah. but I know coming up, uh, I have planned uh, uh, in January, I'm going to be going to Australia, nice. I got a 10, a 10 city tour with Walter in, in Australia, sure. and then uh, uh, next spring, starting in April, I'm going to be doing a five week tour of Europe with Walter. So you go on to a wild oh, how you how do you do that? Uh, I'm, I'm set up. It's all lined up. You know, the, he has the tour, the gigs are already, tickets are sold. Most of the tickets are probably sold out now too. He yeah. sets up the gig, yeah. but I, uh, I'm enjoying playing every night. It's so cool to just play yeah. and sweat every night. And I, and that's something I'm just really into right now. Yeah. And it's, it sounds like right now you have a great balance of performing live teaching and 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 studio uh, engineering studio you know studio time uh being on people's records like like you know <laughs> who's this bob bob dylan guy <laughs> no john listen we could we could go on and on and we love hearing your stories and 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 you know your contributions to, to music uh, um is, is just is just so impressive and and uh and southern california alone and and what you know so many, so many of your stories hearing about <laughs> Eddie Van Halen. Play more where that came from. We'll do that oh. volume too. Yeah, there's got to be a Yeah, and, and 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 we have we have some ideas. We're gonna pick your brain on uh, for some more productions. Uh, but uh, 
but no, we, Hey John, we, we really appreciate um, any, any final words that you want to share to your fans and, and our listeners out there before we, uh, before we call it a night. Well, I want to say thank all of you, including you two gentlemen for supporting live music. Uh, musicians need a place to play and we need an audience to play to. And, and you giving this light to bands and artists to share that, what they do and getting fans to come out and, and take part of the joy of it. Yeah. And uh, we can't do it without the fans. And so I always say thank you. Yeah, I, I thank everyone who comes to shows. Thank you for coming and thank you for supporting live music so that we can do this for you. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, this year, uh, you know, from the moment that I took that, I was helping my friend move into that apartment and we went up in the attic. Oh, that, that, was, that was 50 years ago. Wow, wow. happy 50 years. So, so I'm I'm in my 50th year of doing this right now, and I, Congratulations, I'm thankful man. that I can say that. Absolutely. Talking about devotion and yeah. dedication. Yes, as, mm -hmm. as you should. Happy anniversary to you. <laughs> <laughs> and and I can't wait to meet you in person. And want to want to thank Scott for for helping uh, with this. Thank interview. you, Scott. Love you, man. Yeah. So I wonder what occasion is going. And, to and check out Scott's new record. Oh my God! Yes, so we will. What occasion yes. would bring all three of us together? Well, we're going to come out and see former members uh, Oingo Boingo, and next right. time you're you're around. Uh, mm -hmm. So. Please hit me up when you do, so we can. Yeah, help. absolutely. We, we, we without we wouldn't serve any good purpose without us letting you know. Absolutely. Thank you, John. But yeah. At, at this particular point, I guess we say uh, thanks to everyone for their ongoing support, and please subscribe yes. to this podcast series and our YouTube channel. Follow us at History of Alaska and on Instagram, and join our Facebook group. Is Facebook group is growing leaps and bounds. And please follow this gentleman at Junior Francis. And and John, where can people find you? Uh, you could find me on my Facebook or Instagram, Johnny Baseman. Yes. And uh, I have a face with a bunch of skulls on my Instagram. Oh no, wait! Uh, I just changed the picture. There's a picture of me bending strings. Okay. So you'll see the guy bending strings really crazy. Uh, <laughs> a and, lifetime of bending, 50 years. Yes, and, and there's a lot of footage of me playing on this tour that I just did. And you can find that on waltertrout.com. And check out Oingo Boingo Facebook page. There's a lot of great footage of, of our recent gigs we just did in October. And uh, please come and see the band because the band is killing it. Indeed, yes, sir. Indeed, mm -hmm. yeah. Th and, and again, thank you so much for uh, all the wonderful stories and uh, for, for giving us so much joy and for making the time uh, mm -hmm. tonight, John. Well, and well, I should point out that this series is produced by Rockery Radio at Rockery underscore. And Eric, you're very extremely busy on Rockery Radio. And uh, until next time, John, thank you. Junior, thank you. And as, oh, yeah. and as thank you, Junior and Eric, you know, thank you guys. Yes, indeed. And we always end the show with this. Please get out and support live music. Mm -hmm. And until next time, much love and respect. Take care, John. And Junior. keep up the good work. Yes. <laughs> Thank take you. Out there and happy holidays to you. Happy holidays. All right. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.